beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. When I was sketching out the 10 friendship archetypes for my book, The Life Council, 10 Friends Every Woman Needs, I felt strongly that there should be a seat on one's life council for a mentor. I felt this way even though I had long lamented that I didn't really have a mentor, or at least not the type of mentor that I was picturing that was largely professional. Since I've been a freelancer virtually my entire adult life, I started in film and television production when I was 22, all the way through to now in my work in my 40s as a writer and podcaster and creator, this means that I have never really been on a traditional career track. And the benefits of being a freelancer are that you get to make up your path as you go along. And the downside to being a freelancer is that you have to make up your path as you go along. So I love the independence and the uniqueness of my career, but there have been many times that I have wished that a boss-like figure would just like swoop in and tell me exactly what to do to advance my prospects. So when I started to write this mentor chapter of the Life Council, I sat down thinking that I was going to write a section, like with a twist, that I was going to write about how it was an important seat on the Life Council, but that I, the creator of the Life Council, had never filled it. But as I wrote, I realized that I had, in fact, had multiple mentors over the course of my life. Yes, even in adulthood, they just didn't fit into these professional parameters that I was picturing. But I wrote about in my first book, I wrote about in this book, that there have been many women who have been life mentors, who have taught me how to be in the world. I ended up writing about my friend Chrisanne, who has been a role model for me in many ways. She is the originator of the Life Council concept. And then I also wrote about my friend Cindy, who had made such an impression on me in my earliest days in Los Angeles that her influence can be traced in my life throughout so many choices that have followed in the last two decades. 
This summer, I will celebrate 22 years of living in LA. That blows my mind. But that first year, when I was mentored by Cindy, remains one of the most important seasons of my life. I recorded this amazing conversation with my mentor, Cindy, earlier this year as part of my Secret Tapes, an interview series that I created for people who pre-ordered The Life Council before its release in April. There are 10 episodes of conversations between me and The Life Council members that I write about in the book. I talked to my high school friends in a hilarious group conversation. I talked to my business mastermind, where we say things that we've never said publicly before. I talked to my battle buddy, Amber, and my password protector, Meg Teets, and my soul sister, Lindsay Lawler. They are all just really amazing episodes. The secret tapes were meant for those who pre-ordered only, but of course, there have been many people who have discovered the Life Council after it was already out. So those readers, maybe you are one of them, would have had no access to the secret tapes, a series that greatly enhances reading the book. So I've decided to make the secret tapes available again for a limited time because June is my birthday month and I'm feeling nostalgic about sharing these beautiful conversations with you. And also because I know how many of you will love listening to these episodes like the one that you're about to hear with Cindy. If you want to listen to the full series of the secret tapes, go to lauratremaine.com slash secret tapes, and you'll have to enter your email address and where you purchased the Life Council, or if you got it from the library, that works too. That's lauratremaine.com slash secret tapes to sign up with your email address to get all of these episodes, all 10 of them. And now here is the full ad-free version of the secret tapes episode with my mentor, Cindy. These are The Secret Tapes, a series of conversations with the people I write about in my new book, The Life Council, 10 Friends Every Woman Needs. When I asked Cindy to come to my house to record a Secret Tapes episode together, I had only seen her just a handful of times in the last 10 years. And yet... She remains one of the most powerful influences in my whole life. I met Cindy in 2001 when I moved to LA, and we met through my new Los Angeles roommate, Megan, who I write about in the book as one of my battle buddies. And if you followed me for a long time, you might know her as Dr. Megan for my stories of that first year in Los Angeles. So Megan and I were introduced to Cindy through a family friend. And when we met, Cindy was married to someone that I call Trey in the book. That is not his real name. He is another enormous influence in my life from that time, especially since he was an executive at MTV and he is the one that got me my first job in television. And that first job led to the second job, which led to meeting Jeff and all of my life that unfolded after that. Cindy and Trey had a baby when we met, Sullivan, who we call Sully throughout this conversation. And Cindy quickly became someone that I wanted to copy at every turn. And that is why I write about her in the Life Council as the mentor. I think you'll soon see why. Cindy is an artist and an entrepreneur at heart. You'll hear us talk about her many successful businesses. I almost wish we could do a whole podcast episode on that side of her life. 
And for the last year and a half, she has been creating a headstand project where she photographed herself doing headstands every single day in 2022. And then she turned it into art. She shares more about all of that at the end of our conversation, but she references it early on. And so I wanted you to know what she was talking about. I'm so grateful to have crossed paths with Cindy at such a crucial and formative time in my life. If you are going to latch on to someone as a teacher, as a mentor, when you're 22 years old, there is no one better than Cindy. Your daughter now is the same age as I was when we met. I know. I realized that and I got teary. When you asked me to come talk to you, I was like, how is that even possible? She was one when you met her. She's about to graduate college and I've known you. I've watched you grow and become this human and adult and a mom and it yeah, same age. It's kind of crazy, huh? It, it's beyond crazy. But I mean, maybe not that you couldn't relate then, but just thinking now, thinking of her and how old she is, that that's how old I was when I like showed up in Hollywood and didn't know anyone, <laughs> literally Wait. knew no one, was living with my sorority sister, Megan, who I also write about in the book. Mm-hmm. I, I write about Megan as a battle buddy because that first year in Los yeah. Angeles together was like a battle yeah. <laughs> in so many ways. She and I had been sorority sisters, but we didn't know each other very well. Uh-huh. We were sort of just acquaintances when we moved out here together. But she had family friends that included your husband at the time. Mm-hmm. And that was the only person, the literal only person that we knew in Los Angeles. So. When Megan and I landed here, we basically showed up on your doorstep and knocked on the door. (laughs) Right? And we gave you Thomas guides. You did. You gave us more than Thomas guides. You gave us so much. But I say in the book, and I'm going to ask you this now. I can't, I am actually not sure if we've talked about this face to face or not. How old were you at the time? 30? Sully was one, so I was 32. Okay, you were 32 years old. Two fresh out of the sorority house. 22-year-olds show up on your porch claiming to know your husband. (laughs) And he, who was like family friends, was like, yeah, we're going to, you know, kind of take these girls in and take them under our wing. Honestly, was that suspect to you? No. No. Because I had been gifted with amazing people throughout my 20s who opened their doors for me, who took me in, who let me sleep on their couch or, you know, have dinner at their table or something. So that that I think is a ingrained part of my nature. And I was just like the more the merrier. You were, which was shocking. And I, I by the way, just to clarify, I don't mean suspect um, on his part yeah. at all. I meant suspect of just like, we were total moochers. Like, no, you weren't. We invited you for everything. That was, I mean... Our house was open. The door was always open. We loved having people in and out, you know? I mean, that was your home culture for sure. But also looking back, I mean, at the time, I was fully willing to take advantage of all of it. But looking back, I thought, you know, Cindy didn't really ask for this to happen. (laughs) And I never feel like we, we didn't have the maturity or 
really understanding to even like clear it with you. Like, are you cool that we're at your house all the time and we're, you know, young and ridiculous and made bad mistakes and, <laughs> you know, you trusted us with your child and, you know, to babysit and yep. you trusted us in your home when you weren't there to yep. house sit and – I don't know. Why did you do that? (laughs) I mean, I just saw a little bit of myself in you guys. Like, I graduated college, bought a one-way ticket, moved to New York City. I had never been to New York City. I didn't know anybody there. And I went, and I got there on a Thursday. I got a job on Friday. I found an apartment Sunday, and I started working Monday. And lately, I asked my mom, I was like, how did you let me do that? And, she, and she's like, there was no discussion. Like it was, it was, you were doing that. And so I trusted you enough to go out into the world and represent and take care of yourself and figure it out. So I definitely saw a little bit of myself in you guys in this bold move to just move blindly, you know, to LA, you know, Megan was taking a year off before medical school. So like, she had a time limit, but you you were coming. You were here to become a writer, to work in Hollywood, you know, to start your new life. And I just I love that. And like now as my daughter is is the same age as you guys were, and she's talking about either staying in New York or going to Europe or moving to Atlanta where she's never been, or coming back to LA or traveling, all of those are big yeses for me. You know, I'm just like, I, I believe that we become who we are supposed to be as people by taking risk and having faith that where you go, that your people will find you or accept you or welcome you. And so I just, I'm like, I, I, I love that you would even consider that you were mooching or not welcome because it like, it was just an odd – it was a full-body yes for me when you guys walked through the door. And and you walked through and you were there constantly. Constantly. Yeah. We were there constantly. I mean, my mom also was like, well, we didn't have a say. Like, yes. I was going to move to California. But I remember when she came to visit one of the sort of early times, I remember that she said to you – I don't even know where we were, but that she was like, I'm so glad you're here. Like, I'm so glad that I, I there's re- someone here to take care of these girls. I, I remember her saying that to me. I do. And, it, and you know, it made me feel good. And I, and I hope I made her feel good because we, oh, yes. we did have you. We did have your backs and we were there for whatever, whatever we could provide. Yeah, absolutely. And if I think about it now... I mean, my daughter's only 13, but, like, I would feel the same as she did. If she was on an adventure and she kind of got taken in by a very stable, nice family, Mm -hmm. I'd be like, fantastic. That's the best case scenario. (laughs) But what I remember about you from those days was, so you were 32. This is my 22-year-old perspective looking at you, was, like, how – busy you were. You had multiple businesses at the time. Mm -hmm. You had a craft service business. You had a photography business, Mm -hmm. maybe other stuff. You were renovating a house. (laughs) You had a new baby. And I just felt like you could do it all. You felt like superwoman to me. What did that era feel like to you? I mean, looking back, I am so grateful I had my own businesses because I was able to sort of back into what I needed to do to keep them going and growing. 
and be a full-time mom, which mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't get that option. And, you know, I shared with Sully the other day, I was like, yeah, babe, like you were little and I would pick you up from the bus stop and I would be with you while you did your homework and feed you dinner and put you to bed. But then I was up till midnight or 1 a.m. doing invoices. Or sometimes I had a 5 a.m. call and I think you actually came over one time to I needed someone to be there when she woke up and get her to the bus stop, mm-hmm. you know. So there were there were there were things like that I had to back into. But the biggest takeaway for me was just that I do feel like I was pretty much a full time mom, even though I had these crazy businesses going that were growing and important to me, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was a whirlwind. though. It was definitely a whirlwind. Like, like there's there was a moment where Sully had borrowed my husband's sweater and it got put in the laundry and I washed it. It was a like a, a cashmere sweater and it just shrunk to be like you know, like tiny, tiny size. And I was so upset that I had washed it with the wash. And she was so upset that she had put it in the pile and all of that. And when he came home and we sort of revealed this to him, his response was calm. And he said, listen, we're all moving so fast right now. It's okay. Like stuff's going to happen, you know? And it was such a, such a beautiful moment for her to witness and for me to experience because he could be more high strung than that on a normal basis and in a work mode and all of that. But in this moment that I know our daughter still remembers to this day, a, a mistake she made and then a mistake that I made on top of that ruined something that he really cared about. And he responded just with like love and calmness, mm-hmm. you know, and but I'll never forget when he said we're just moving too fast. And I I think of that often when I'm in a state of like too much going on or I haven't had enough time alone to like reset or catch my breath or, you know, that's that I have found is really important as I've gotten older, um, because, in you know, in the midst of all that craziness, I definitely didn't have the wherewithal to take time or I didn't even have time to catch those moments and catch my breath. But as I've gotten older, it's 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 not optional. Mm-hmm. Like I have to make time for it or, you know, I just get depleted and um, and I know I'm better well, that's two-sided. I mean, I feel like that's okay, we're moving too fast. This is a wake-up call is too strong of a word mm-hmm. for a sweater. But you know what I mean? This is like a, something to notice that yeah. we're we're moving too fast. There's too much going on. But then the other side of that is grace of like, and we're going to give ourselves grace because we have a lot going on. Yes. Yes. And I remember that type of attitude emanating from both of you. He was a network TV executive. Mm-hmm. In fact, he's the one that's responsible for getting Megan and our first, you know, production assistant jobs, which then that first job for me led to meeting Jeff and like yeah. everything that yes. came after. That came from his his connections and his um, guidance in that time. But I remember that your house, your home, it felt like all of that grace mm-hmm. and acceptance, but also like you were not chill Californians. Like, you were not... I mean, there was, like, a lot happening at all times. You were, like, busy. There were house guests. There was a lot of people in and out. However, I did see you as a city girl. Mm-hmm. Because you grew up here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Burbank, which is... I'm a sixth-generation California girl. <laughs> There's not many of us. My daughter's seventh generation. 
Burbank, you know, it's adjacent to Hollywood, but it was very much like Mayberry, like very small town for the most – I mean, like we would go over the hill into Hollywood, you know, in high school and walk along the streets of Hollywood and think we were so cool, you know. And now I live in the middle of Hollywood looking at the Hollywood sign, you know, yeah. in a loft. And I, uh, I think it's so funny. Even people who I grew up with, like when I invite them over to my loft now – you know how open I am and all of that. Well, they think it's like the other side of the planet or it's Hollywood, quote unquote, and they, they don't come. And it's 10 minutes to get there from Burbank. Like it's Wait, really? Mm-hmm. They were more likely to come to our house in West Adams than they are to my loft in Hollywood. Because Hollywood, the neighborhood, yep. we're distinguishing between... This is sort of hard, I think, if you don't in L- live in L.A. There's Hollywood, the literal neighborhood. Like, this is a part of Los Angeles. And there's, like, Hollywood, the industry, which Correct. is like the entertainment industry. So Cindy lives literally in Hollywood, Hollywood, like the neighborhood. So do they think it's dangerous? Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it, and it kind of can be. Like, when, when the riots were going on after the George Floyd thing, we were ground zero. Like, the marches were going on in, uh, in you know, on Hollywood Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard. Well, then they were detoured down our street and then down Melrose. And then the looting started of Melrose Mac. And all. I mean, it, we were standing on the roof watching all of this happen. And Well, Hollywood is not the safest part of Los Angeles for sure. But it's definitely not a place if you lived here. Like if you lived in Burbank, you I can't fathom being like, I can't go over there. I, I know. And I don't even know that it's so much of a like, I can't go. They just don't really. I'm always surprised, like, when people do make it over, <laughs> which shouldn't be. But L.A. is a city of neighborhoods. Like, if you live in Beverly Hills, if you live in Santa Monica, if you live in Malibu, you know, like we're speaking, Hollywood, Pasadena, all of these places are, let's say, 30 minutes on average apart. And like, but they're also like worlds apart. Yes. <laughs> Easily. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. So you grew up in Burbank, but you've mm-hmm. lived in Hollywood for, I don't know, how long now? 15 years? Yeah, yeah. When I came back from New York City, I moved to downtown L.A. in a loft. So I lived in a loft in New York, completely fell in love with the lifestyle, moved to downtown L.A., was in a loft there for 10 years. And that's where I met my husband. He he was actually making a short film that took place on a rooftop, and our mutual friend said, hey, my friend Cindy has this great loft, and he made his short film there, and that's how we met. So through this random mm-hmm. moment of like trying to create a a film for his friend who couldn't get an agent because he didn't have any acting reels and didn't couldn't get acting jobs because he didn't have an agent so they were like let's just make a film for you and so they made this short film and I was the location and that's how we met and so I lived in that loft for 10 years and then we bought our house um in West Adams we were there 14 years and then we had sort of a moment where uh, he was working in New York for a year and coming home every weekend. And every time he would come home, he was like very aware, fresh eyes on the house of like, well, we need to redo that. This needs fixed. That, you know, and I was running around as a single mom running my businesses. He would come home on the weekend and I just wanted to sit still and be together. And it was like he was in mo- this mode of doing things. So finally, we sat down as a family and we got a whiteboard out and we sort of wrote the pros and cons of like staying in our house versus selling our house because we felt like we had thrown every party we wanted to throw there. We felt like as 
our daughter was in middle school and very busy. Like all we were doing was living in the kitchen and the bedrooms. We didn't have like the revolving door of people coming and going. I mean, everyone was kind of in their own corners, living their lives, raising their kids. And so our sweet spot of like open house, loving our house had passed a little. Mm -hmm. And so we made the decision to right size. So we looked all over for a perfect loft, which we found, and it was six blocks from my businesses. And we sold our house and bought the loft and made it exactly what we wanted and needed with nothing extra, no yard to take care of, no pool to take care of, you know, all of that. So that was that was how we made the decision to go back to the loft was by literally looking at our life and saying, what's missing? What are we doing? Like, let's take this opportunity to right size. Mostly because some of our friends were breaking up at the time, mm. and we were watching them go through this forced selling of the home in order to separate or divorce. And it was under such trauma. And we felt like we were so lucky to be able to make this decision on our own, not out of a traumatic experience or mm-hmm. a need to cash out or whatever. And it and it felt really right at the time. I mean, and we all decided to do it. And we miss our house. Like, we've been back a couple of times to visit with the people who own it now. And they still have, you know, Sully's height chart on the doorway. Oh. I know. And it's been through two owners. And, you know, I always meant to take that with me. But um, the people who own it now, they said, oh, it's one of our favorite things of the whole house is that you open the door and they see her growing. Oh, that's so beautiful. That house was really special. I miss that house. I remember when you told me you were moving and I was like, no, why? <laughs> I know. Did well, it- now you know, you have a better idea why. Like, it, we, we were done with it. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating and, yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full-body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben-free. It is also pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. It's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. Born Shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. 
I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes just like I did in my Born sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season, they make high-quality shoes that feel as good as they look. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to bornshoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's born, B-O-R-N, shoes, S-H-O-E-S, .com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping. Available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. Were all of your friends, did they react like I did? Absolutely. People did not want you to leave that house. No. And still, I mean, I miss it, Sully misses it, and our friends miss it. I mean, so that is something I get as a constant when people be like, oh, that house was so amazing. Right, but you know it wasn't about the house. I mean, actually, it was, it was a physically beautiful house. Yeah. But it wasn't about the house. It was about what y'all made there because it, it was spacious. I mean, for L.A., it was enormously spacious. Uh-huh. It was huge. But it had this huge kitchen that you had renovated, made all your mm-hmm. own because that's your one of your talents. And I've written about this on social media b- before, but... You had this thing called Sunday Waffles mm-hmm. that was such a huge part of my early years of L.A. Like, one of the biggest parts of my early years in L.A. was the Sunday Waffles idea. Mm-hmm. Will you explain it? Absolutely. It it actually, it was our fifth anniversary. We had had an anniversary party, and Marika and Tom Hodges gave us a waffle maker as a gift and wrote us a note that said, P.S. We love waffles. <laughs> <laughs> so the next Sunday, we invited them over for waffles. And I think you guys were probably included in that and a couple other. And from that day forward, every Sunday, we would just have an open, like, you didn't have to say you were coming. You didn't have to come at a certain time. You didn't have to come and talk to anybody. You could come and read the paper. You could come and eat. You could drink. You could go sit in the backyard by the pool by yourself. You could do anything you wanted. But we just had an ongoing Sunday fun day before that was a thing um, that included waffles and bacon and fresh squeezed orange juice and the mixed butter, the you know heated syrup with the butter. And the, I mean, we didn't mess around. There was never any filler. It was just all amazing food for whoever was in town and and it was a revolving door like there was times where we had parents there there was times where we had friends visiting from out of town or friends that were in from Chicago or friends of friends like you were always it was you were open to bring anybody you wanted and that just helped widen the whole and and the philosophy behind it came from my Sunday night dinners which I used to do at my loft like mm-hmm. I started cooking dinners for 50 people every six weeks when I lived downtown by myself before I met my husband. And people who came to those dinners would say, like, you have a talent for this. Like, you should do this. And I mean, at the time, like, I was broke. It was in my early 20s. And I would pass a can around and everybody would put five or ten dollars in there to help me pay for the food. And I'd spend all week, like, making it. And we'd set up a big, long table on the roof. And, you know, and it was always... I would invite about 25 people and they would each bring about a person or so. So it ended up being around 50 people every time. And 
I loved that, like how it grew and evolved. And then those people who were guests then became regulars and they would bring people. And so I think it was that philosophy just spilled into the waffles. Wait, hold on about the dinners. So you were in your 20s hosting these rooftop dinner parties that you paid for and executed just for fun? Totally for fun. I loved bringing people together and feeding them. And I'm like, I'm not a trained chef or anything. Like, I just like to cook. I kind of learned to cook while doing these dinners. And it's funny because that's how my craft service company came to be was my husband came to a couple of those dinners before we were together, like just as a guest. And he said, you know, if you could wrap your head around doing craft services, like you will always have work. So craft services is um, a Hollywood term for basically like catering, on-set catering. It can be either meals, full meals for cast and crew, or it can also just be like snacks all day long and mostly like warm snacks and things like that so that people who are working these long production hours have some warm food Mm -hmm. on the side. It's a set thing. Yeah. So he was like, you should be doing this. Yeah. And I so I sent out a mailing and, you know, it was so we we ended up getting married and then a few months later, he had an opportunity to rejoin his theater company and reprise his role in this show that they had done in Chicago. They were doing it in L.A. So I was like, I need to make more money um, so that he can take less money to become an actor than he was making as a line producer at the time. And so I sent out a mailing to do craft services and I got a couple of jobs on commercials and then it just kept growing and growing and growing. And and I happened to be working on a couple of shows when the writer strike happened. And that was sort of the launch of reality TV. And I was working in non-union at the time. And so what came out was like this plethora of non-union reality shows in order to fill the airways. No one could have predicted that that would would have happened, but I was in the in the space. So I went from having three shows to nine shows overnight and my company just exploded. You know, mm-hmm. so I had it from 97 and then I sold it in 2014 um, because I had opened a cafe and I opened the art studios and I at that point like there was way too many things that I had to take care of and so I sold it in 2014 and it's still going. The people that bought it Oh, really? Yeah. They came to my art show the other day. (laughs) Are y'all hearing this? (laughs) She just rattled off all the businesses that she has had or currently has. And then she also was like, and I had an art show. (laughs) We could, this could be an entrepreneurial episode if we wanted it to be. And you can teach us all how to make money with all of our different talents. Because that's what you do, actually. You are an entrepreneur, but you're also like tapping into your natural talents. Mm. Instead of just like, I don't know, doing a startup or something. It's well, like amazing. Well, these days I'm just doing headstands. <laughs> right now. I know you're doing headstands. Okay, so wait. So you did the Sunday night dinners and then that's what became – I got to get back to Sunday waffles because this mm-hmm. was so important to me. So you started to do this Sunday waffles thing and I can't believe how open door it was. Mm-hmm. Because people would just – it would be a different variety of people every single week. Now, there was some mainstays like yeah. myself. <laughs> I was there every single week that I was in town pretty much for a few reasons. And this actually mattered. One, it was a free meal. Mm-hmm. And I was Absolutely. 22 years old. Yep. And usually I would stay most of the day so I'd get a second meal. Well, and, and it was good food. It was like, so good. There was no – like I said, like we – you know, we really yes. went there. So it was – for me, it was a meal – 
Also, I lived in an apartment. I had a beautiful apartment, but like I wanted to be outside. You had a pool. We could sit outside. It was like a, a free for me experience to get out of my apartment, which in Los Angeles, most people are apartment living. So that's like no small thing to be able to go mm-hmm. and like be able to sit outside and um, be among friends. And I just remember that there was a core of us. There was maybe, I don't know, five, give or take, who were always there. Yes. And then there was just different people. But because you and your husband knew so many interesting people, I mean, it was like yogis and producers and famous people. Correct. And like other just moochers like me. <laughs> like it was such a variety of people. I mean, to this moment, I think back on important conversations I had during that time, connections that I made. Mm-hmm. I ended up working for someone like who was a producer later that had been there. Yeah, like some celebrity experiences that was like really formative to me in the beginning where I was like, oh my gosh, it normalized Hollywood life in a way. And I know that this isn't a totally normal experience either, by the way, but it just like, I was like, this is what, this is what it is like to live in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. is what it felt like to me. Well, and, and and you saw how normal it can be for big celebrities to be there amongst random people, you know, and they, and they are not big celebrities when they're there in our home. Right. It's just they're there for breakfast, for the waffles. <laughs> it was a lesson to me, actually, in mm. um, demystifying celebrity. Sure. I think. Oh, I Which love that. Anyone here who lives here long enough, that's that lesson is probably going to come at some point. But that was, you know, my first year. And so to be like, oh, like, everyone's a person. Yep. You know, everyone has bedhead yeah. or <laughs> bad breath or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, we're all just normal humans. Mm-hmm. And... But there's also in this kitchen an immense amount of talent and kindness and generosity. And it was almost like, you know, I would see someone later, later in my life, I would sometimes run into somebody and I knew them peripherally through you. Mm -hmm. And they also remembered Sunday waffles. Oh, that makes me so happy. It's it was like a connecting point. Yeah, it was important. It was important. And it and and it was a lifeline, you know, to us in the early kid days to stay connected to people and to have just have an opportunity for people to come at their leisure without any commitment or, you know, invitation needed. Like it it and it it grew and it was organic and it like I have the best memories from that too. And I I love that it was so important to you. It was so important. Jeff and I have talked for years. Now, um, Jeff was not a part of that crowd of people, although he actually sort of knew a bunch of them. But there's sort of different social circles. And but he knows about it Mm -hmm. because I've talked about it. I especially talked about it, you know, all those years ago. He and I have talked for years about how to, like, recreate that in our own life, how to emulate that. Like, we... This was years ago, like when we had baby babies. We tried to have a documentary, a Friday night documentary night for a while where it was just every Friday we'll have pizza and watch a doc and people can come over and it'll just be a social time. It didn't last very long. We did take on, which anyone who follows me on social media knows this, um, Sunday pancakes. As a family. As a family. Yeah. So we couldn't do the open door thing so much. But just as a sort of ritual for our own family, we did that for 10 years. We still do it. We barely do it now okay. because 
we moved houses mm-hmm. and our family rhythms just changed. Our main pancake maker sleeps till noon now. Oh. <laughs> She's a teenager. <laughs> That's really funny. But then, so she wants to sleep till noon because she's 13, but she also doesn't want us to do Sunday pancakes without, without her. Of course. I totally <laughs> so get we're it. like, yeah. well, what are we yeah. supposed to do? Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of put us a little bit on a standstill because I actually do want her to rest. She's a busy yes. kid and yeah, I yeah. do want her to rest. So I, we're sort of in a weird, we, we haven't done it lately, but it was important to us for a full decade. And that mm-hmm. came out of Sunday waffles for sure. Mm, I love that so much. Yeah. Love that. So also during that, same time, a little bit of a trade-off from Megan and I for all our mooching was that we would babysit. I guess it wasn't a trade-off because y'all also paid us <laughs> so that we could have, like, so a little yeah. bit of spending money, a little bit of extra cash. You paid mm-hmm. us to babysit your baby, who was one and, and older. And a really core memory also for me is that one time you paid me not with dollars. Do you remember this? No. I read about this in the book. This is, like, such a good memory to me. At the time, so this was 2002-ish, mm-hmm. maybe 2003, this was, like, the rise of designer jeans. So prior to this, at least in my life, d- jeans were not that expensive. Like, even fancy jeans were, like, $60. Mm-hmm. And then all other jeans, Levi's and stuff, were, like, $20, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. In the early 2000s is when you started to have, like, $100 jeans. I remember this, mm-hmm. like Miss 60 and like all these fancy mm-hmm. jean, trendy jean companies. And they were expensive. They were $100, $125, which was a lot for jeans culturally, yeah. but uh, too much for me generally. But you knew I wanted them. I'm sure we just talked about it. And so you told me, you asked me to babysit. And I think this was maybe like an overnight mm-hmm. babysitting. And you were like, I'm going to pay you in jeans. And I was like, what? (laughs) And I was like, I don't mind doing the babysitting. But you knew if you had given me $125 cash, I would never in a million years go buy myself jeans with those. Correct. I would have felt like I needed to save it or I would have used it on something useful because I was fairly responsible. Yes. And you were like, no, I'm not even going to give you cash. We are going to go to Bloomingdale's, which we did. Bloomingdale's was very fancy. I mean, it still is. We went to Bloomingdale's in the um, Beverly Center Mall. Do you remember this? Yes, I do. Now I do, yes. And there was like a whole half of a floor, like you went to the second floor or whatever, and the whole half of the floor was all denim because that was like the whole thing. And you were like, pick out anything you want. You didn't give me a budget. (laughs) You didn't give me a brand or a style or anything. You were just like, pick yourself out some good jeans. And you tried on jeans, too. It was fun. You we were, yeah, like, trying I, on jeans. Yeah, because I'm not a shopper. And I, I took it as an opportunity to go with you and also try on stuff. And I do remember this. Oh, my. But I had completely forgotten about it. It stands out to me. It's a core memory for several reasons. One, because if I felt – hold on. I might cry. I felt really seen. Like, you saw that this was something I wanted. Like I was into style and things, but you also saw that I was not going to have bought it for myself. But you, you know, you could have given me hand-me-downs or there's a lot of ways people could handle anything like that. But it was really empowering to be like, you're going to do a job and I'm going to pay you in jeans and they're going to be new. They're not going to be hand-me-downs. You get to pick them out. (laughs) And it was also creative, by the way. Again, that goes back to the (laughs) entrepreneurial part. It was also a creative way to just the all every part of it, 
I was like, this is amazing. I just felt like seen and empowered, but I also felt like I'd earned it, you know, because yep. I'd done a job. Yep. So I didn't feel like it was like charity or whatever. It was just like a really big deal to me, those jeans. Oh my gosh. I it makes me so happy. <laughs> I had not thought about that until you just reminded me. Well, I wrote about it in the book, so everyone's gonna know ah! now. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember it cle- clear as day. And I remember I got sevens. Yeah, of course. Yeah, those were the big the, ones. The big, the best. I mean, I the other day I was like, oh, I should have kept my green cord sevens because <laughs> I could fit them now. Well, okay. um, I cannot fit in those jeans you bought me, but I still have them like in a oh, – okay. I keep all my designer stuff like I save it even mm-hmm. if I if it, it's out of style or I grow out of it or whatever. And even though like jeans aren't necessarily in that same category, I kept them like out of sen- like yeah. sentimental, oh. you know. Yeah. Yeah. So it means so much to me. That makes me so happy. The other thing I write about in the book that I don't know if you clocked or not was, well, two things. One is, do you remember that first year that I was um, really heartbroken? Yes. You do? Yes. I thought I was hiding it. No. (laughs) I mean, maybe not. No. (laughs) I mean... It wasn't like you were crying on the couch every day or talking about it a lot, but it. But we did have some intimate conversations about it. At maybe as a little bit of time went on, or you know, or as you were healing. But I. Do, but I do know that was part of your story. But so you had met me. I've always thought about this. You met me at like maybe my least vibrant self mm. is when you would have met me. Mm. And I always wonder, like, did but that? I, but I, as an observer, I witnessed you come into full bloom living in Los Angeles. Mm, that's you know, true. and um, maybe I mistook your heartbreak for doing this big, bold thing, moving to a city where you don't know anybody, and starting fresh, and all of that as the starting point. Not not factoring in the broken heart as part of that. But I watched you find your way, create your own life, find your voice, make friends, build your place in L.A. And that like that was like a proud mom moment, you know, proud aunt moment, you know. Yeah. I mean, I did. I came to life here. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe maybe I know about that from your blog. Maybe it was more after the fact than, you know, because like I said, I don't remember you sitting in the corner crying or or letting that be your only thing when you got here. But, um, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Megan, my roommate, the battle buddy in the book, I mean, she did have to see me cry, like, daily mm-hmm. for a while. I mean, mm-hmm. it was bad. But I probably did hide it from you because I didn't want. You know, I wanted to, like, make a good impression or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. But I was really suffering from what I see now, clearly, as, a, like, a depression. But when you're in it, you're like, oh, this isn't a depression. I'm in a, you know, I'm in a breakup, which is mm-hmm. valid to be sad in a breakup. And I've moved across the country. And, like, there's I've had a lot of life changes. So, of course, I'm not quite myself. That's a valid way to think about it. But now when I look back, I'm like, oh, no, it was so much darker than mm-hmm. that. Like, mm-hmm. I was not in a good place. And I am so glad that, like, the zombie version of myself mm-hmm. was still putting one put in, one foot in front of the other. I, I think you moving to L.A. was probably the best thing you could have done for yourself because you 
are given no choice but to survive and to put one foot in front of each other and take care of yourself in any way you can and try to lick your wounds and feel better. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas if you were sitting at home in your childhood bedroom during that time, you probably wouldn't have gotten up and through it so uh, gracefully. Yeah, that's that is true. And it was also an opportunity for I really was seeking to reinvent myself Mm -hmm. during that time. Now, actually, that wasn't totally tied to the breakup before we broke up because this um, person was supposed to move to California with me. Mm-hmm. That had been the plan. And then he backed out and I moved with Megan. So so before even the breakup part, I had been seeking a post-college reinvention. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people moved to Los Angeles for that reason. I feel like Los Angeles attracts those type of people. It's mm-hmm. kind of the energy of the city mm-hmm. is people reinventing themselves. And I love that about L.A. I, I love that. I know some people are, like, repelled by people's constant reinvention here. But I feel a lot of energy from it. So I moved here in August, fresh off that breakup. And I remember in about February, so roughly six months later, I felt like I woke up out of a fog almost overnight, mm. which is why I can sort of see it as a depression almost. Mm-hmm. And I woke up and I had this really cool job you know, MTV, and I had friends, and I remember being like, okay, now that I'm sort of out of this fog part and I'm out of the immediacy of moving here, what do I want to move towards? And, like, who do I want to be? And I always look to you for that. Mm. Like, I was like, that. (laughs) You had businesses, you had a beautiful family, you had a lovely home, you had these hosting capabilities that were beyond. And I was like, that. Mm -hmm. And I have thought that about you for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Even in your your last few years, we've both had some life changes. And I've still been like, that. (laughs) She is doing the best life that she can do. I've always felt that about you. It's really beautiful. Oh, I'm going to cry. I really mean it. I mean, that's why I write about you in the book as the mentor. Even when we we had some years there where we barely spoke. I mean, not not out of rift, but just like I had babies and you had businesses and whatever. Yeah. But just through social media or just through mutual friends or whatever, I've always looked at you like that. Thank you. I know I'm not the only one. I want you to know that you're a mentor, even like from a distance, to so many people. The way you live your life. Mm. I I had an Uber driver tell me the other day, you're changing the world. You know that? (laughs) Because of my head stance. And I was like, what? Wait, how did the Uber driver know? He picked me up and... I said I said I was still jet lagged because I just got back from a month in Thailand and Laos and uh, Singapore, traveling and doing headstands. And I said something about I'm still jet lagged or whatever because I was traveling. And he said, "Where were you traveling? What were you doing?" And I said, "Oh, I did this project last year where I did a headstand every day for 365 days, and now I'm doing headstands around the world." And he said. I do headstands. I was like, great. Do you want to pull over and we'll like do one together? He's like, oh no, I'm not ready to be filmed. <laughs> so we just started talking about like what what I was doing and why I would go travel for a month by myself to these countries I've never been to. And that like the, the main purpose of that was to do headstands in cool places. And 
And I said, you know, I just I want other women who are at the middle part of their life, whether they're leaving marriages or just kids empty nesting, like like we're at this midpoint and it's up to us to recalibrate and reclaim who we are for this next part, this next chapter, Um, because it's really easy to just fall into a routine of how life has always been. And it shifts. It has to shift. And you can either create a new life that better fits you or you can slowly die away. And so I was just sort of giving him like my how I was really hoping to bottle up my experience of traveling and give other women the courage to go travel alone. Because there are things that I experience when I travel alone that I would never have if I was with my family or a partner or a friend or whatever. And most people don't even think about traveling alone. And I, you know, I know if I ever partner again, I will absolutely travel alone for the rest of my life because it's just a different, a different experience. Right. I need to hear more about that. But do you want to share with us why your life has changed, how your life has changed in the last few years that has been a pretty big shift? Sure, sure. It's um, my marriage of 22 years ended, which was unexpected. I loved being married. I loved my family. I loved my husband. I never would have chosen to leave the marriage, but it it happened. And from the very beginning of our separation, I decided that I was going to go through it positively, wholly, fearlessly, because I wanted to get to the other side because I I felt like I still have time to create a new life for myself. And um, I believe that things happen. Mm -hmm. And I had a really happy marriage for 22 years. And I'm so grateful for that, you know. Um, But during this time, also, the building where my businesses were got sold. So that sort of changed. And then like, there was a lot of shifts with my businesses, with my family and everything. So everything felt like it was upside down. Like my whole world was upside down. Everything I knew and trusted and believed in had been taken from me. And I was like, the only thing that nobody can take from me is my fitness, my photography, my ability to feed people, my, you know, and so I started circling around that, which is kind of how I, what I did in my 20s to like make rent was like, I did a little job, this little that. And during lockdown, like I did my first headstand on a stand up paddleboard in the Cayman Islands. I've never done yoga on a paddleboard. I'm not a yogi. I didn't do headstands. I'm not a gymnast. And at the end of this yoga class, this woman was like, if you want to try a pose, try it. And I I got up on there and I did a headstand. And I was like, huh, that was interesting. So then I had a friend during lockdown, we were hiking a lot. And he said, you know, you should document, start taking pictures of your, you know, do a headstand when you're on a hike and whatever, and do a coffee table book. So, so then that was the plan for a good six months. And then my daughter last summer before she went back to school, she's like, listen, mom, I love your headstands. <laughs> I love the coffee table book idea, but it's time to up-level your headstands. <laughs> she said, what you're doing is performance art, and I've never seen anything like it. She said, you should be collaborating with other artists, like find a clothing designer so when you go upside down, the clothes fall into place. 
you need to find better locations and like, you know, interesting things. And her giving me this pep talk blew my mind wide open because I had kind of just been doing it as I went along. And the next night I met a friend at a bar. I hadn't been to a bar in five years. There's jazz, live jazz music playing. I mean, I haven't even been out. It's like COVID's been happening, all of that. I'm in this bar full of strangers, live music playing. And I decided I was going to do a headstand on the table at the booth. And it took me 40 minutes to get out of my head to just do it because I didn't want the attention. Like I was, but I kept hearing my daughter's voice say, up level, mom, up level. Like you got to do it. So finally I did it. And my friend who was with me, she had filmed me trying to do it, like in my head, like, uh, and then I finally did it and they, everybody cheered and it was this thing. And I, I put those two clips together and that was my first TikTok, you know, (laughs) which is hilarious. But, um, but then since then I, I did, I did this 365 headstand project where I posted one every day for all of 2022. Now I'm doing headstands around the world where I'm doing like four big trips and I'm just finding interesting places and I meet so many interesting people doing headstands. And it's just, it's so weird because like I'll be 55 and like I'm photographing myself doing headstands in lingerie and bikinis and heels like on the Brooklyn Bridge at 530 in the morning or, you know, just like none of it makes sense. I'm making NFTs. I have like over 300 NFTs in my collection. Only sold three, but like I have NFTs of me doing headstands. Like all of it, none of it makes sense. But I feel like everything I've done prior in my life has led me to this project because because of the insecurity of losing my businesses, losing my marriage, lose, you know, my daughter, I didn't lose my daughter. She just grew up and she's, you know, graduating college. But starting over and trying to figure out a way to utilize skills that I have or things that are important to me that nobody can take away. Like that's the key element of like how I found this project. And now it's become part of me. So it's, it's so absurd that it's amazing, you know? (laughs) Do you think that the Headstand Project is like, is it special because first of all, not everyone can do a headstand. Certainly not everyone can do a headstand in a bikini. Lord have mercy. (laughs) But is it like a day, the daily assignment of it? I mean, when I started the 365, like I thought, okay, I'll just post one every day. Like, but by day three, I was like, oh no, it's on. Like, I want them to be meaningful or beautiful or, you know, I wanted each week to look, every single one to look different and feel different. Some are live, some are um, still shots. I learned apps. I had never paid for a single app in my entire life until last year. And then I was... Because like, you make them look arty and yeah. stuff. Well, and I figured out how to do that just by, like, I would try something and I would play around with it. And I'd be like, ooh, I like that. And I like that. And then most of them, like most of my NFTs are, and my posts are one of a kind. And I couldn't recreate them if if I needed to, because like I often pass them through three or four apps by the time I am done. Oh, right. You know, I may do a comic and then turn it into a watercolor or, you know, different variations. But I think the daily assignment of putting it out there, like when I when I hit January 2nd, when I was done with the project, I was really blue for like a week not posting every day. Mm-hmm. But I I made a conscious decision to take a little hiatus and I'm going to start posting my 
my headstands around the world on my 55th birthday in May because I just I thought I've been giving it away for free every day and I I think it's important to make people want it a little bit, you mm-hmm. know, and not just be used to it and and I wanted to re regurgitate my own creativity and like catch my breath and find new ways to present the headstands and all of that. But I did have an art show at the end of the 365 project which was for me an, a, like an exclamation point to sort of finalize this like year-long commitment and I was really proud of it and and I think because I put them out one at a time everybody got a daily dose but when I started putting them together and seeing like the whole wall gallery of how different they are and like I was I'm really proud of this whole project. Well you should be and I want people to not be derailed by the idea of a headstand or an idea of the apps or whatever that giving ourselves little daily assignments using our own um, talents to get through a hard time kind of reclaiming a piece of ourselves Mm -hmm. that's what I'm seeing you do and people could do this in millions of ways whatever that you know if you wanted to take a walk every day if you you know if you're not creative maybe you're a baker maybe you're whatever you are that you could have a little project that anchors you yeah. back to who you want to be, that gives yeah. you something to do every day to get out of your head. Absolutely. To share it with the world. Now, I do like this project, especially because of the sharing element, that you've been sharing them mm-hmm. for the whole year. And, you know, that's why I do these social media challenges is to get people to share whatever I'm trying to get them to share yeah. at the time. Because there is something about that. There is something... I don't even about the cycle of sharing and getting a reaction or a response or you don't have to tie it to the response. Like, yeah, there's a thing that happens with us when we share. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like I have a guy in Brazil who started doing a headstand every day on his birthday in November for and he's going to do it for a year, (laughs) you know, so I don't know him, but he's he took on the challenge. And he'll tag me sometimes, you know, but it may, like, I feel like I have someone in Brazil now doing them, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. And, and people send me headstands and handstands, like references that they see. Like anytime now people see something, they send it to me. And usually that will inspire me to do something, a part, another post of it. You know, I just feel validated that like, like I am now part of their psyche, you know, mm-hmm. with this this thing, not because they want to do headstands, like you were saying, but because they see, you know, this this is something I care about. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I, I, I love that it's such a random thing, like a headstand, because, again, I'm not a gymnast or, you know, I don't even know how I know how to do it, but I know I'm strong. I know I can do one almost anywhere. I really wanted to feed the elephant. Um, when I was in Thailand. Mm-hmm. So I was at an elephant sanctuary and the elephant was kind of behind a bar and the handler was right there. So I positioned myself like far enough away, get upside down, but I can't see anything. A friend that I had met put the banana on my feet. <laughs> Someone else had the had my camera and was filming. I could feel her breathing on me with her, from her tusk around my ankles and around my feet. Then she gently scoops her tusk, grabs the banana, and curls it around and puts it in her mouth. And they all start cheering. So I was like, okay, I think I'm in the clear. Like, I kind of clapped with my feet and came down. And I was like, I don't think anyone's ever fed an elephant from their feet in a headstand, you know? It is so random. I know. It's 
you. It's so you, Cindy, to just be known for this very specific. <laughs> I, we, I, I did a, I catered a job for the Gary Marshall Theater. You know, he died like six years ago. And so on his birthday, they were doing like a fundraiser for the first time. And I catered this huge event for them. And so they had a, a step and repeat, you know, with the, the whole thing. And I had all the food set up. So I ran over to the step and repeat to get a headstand there just to have it. I go up in my headstand and this gust of wind comes <laughs> and knocks the whole step and repeat, like collapses down behind me. Like I had nothing to do with it, but literally like, so it's all on film, whatever. Well, I I saw Kathleen the other day. She bought a bunch of my pictures at my show. She said, oh, yeah, my whole family associates gusts of wind as Gary because he has shown up since he passed in these random ways where this wind comes out of nowhere. She said, when we saw the step and repeat fall, we were like, oh, there's Gary. She said, and he would have loved you. And your stick. <laughs> he loved anybody who had like a stick or a you know something so random that they did or cared about or whatever. So now I I I love thinking about that that step and repeat collapsing behind me as Gary Marshall, you know, tapping me on the shoulder saying, "Keep going." Oh my god, that's such a good story. He's you know he came to my loft once for a dinner, and he's literally the most charming man I've ever met. And, you know, he taught, was sitting there talking about typewriting, all his scripts, and I collect old typewriters. I always have. I love them. And he was also talking about the Happy Days house and how he and Ron Howard were, would hang out in this, whatever. Well, it turns out the Happy Days house is literally a block away from my loft. But we didn't know this at the time. And so here he was in my loft for a dinner talking about the Happy Days house, which is right down the street. Oh. Isn't that crazy and random? That's very L.A. Very L.A. Well, his daughter said, wait, I thought the Happy Days house was in Milwaukee. I was like, no, it's it's right down the street from Paramount. Yeah. It's, right. Yeah. It had to be shot here. I feel like you should write a book. You should be the one to write a book because you have so many stories. <laughs> a million stories. I mean, I have been writing a book um, called Catapult, which is basically how to survive a midlife breakup with love, grace, and self-awareness. Oh, that's amazing. And it's most of it's come from my journals. I think it's really important because it I, I document my whole path forward. Uh, but each chapter, I have a quote and I have like a journal prompt at the end. I have actual things from my journal and stories of, of things. And so that's one element. But I do I do think it's important because I just think we we could waste a lot of time not healing yeah. and at and at 50 you don't waste any time you know yeah it's it's a gift to everyone around you to do what you can to feel better to heal yourself to forgive to move forward to create something new for yourself you know yeah and you have modeled that because before we before we press record, I was asking you a little bit about forgiveness, and you were just so open about how early in the process of your life changing, you were able to offer that. And I, my mouth fell open because <laughs> I was like, I would not have been like that. You're a better person than me and always have been. But we have always shared in common journaling. I'm glad you yes. mentioned that because I forgot to bring that up. But 
I've been journaling since I was middle school age-ish. And I remember not like reading your journals, but seeing your journals Mm -hmm. back when I was in your home a lot. And you're always open about your journaling process. And sometimes you do share your journal entries or you would show me, you know, the pages and stuff like that. I always love that. Tell me just a little bit about what journaling has meant for you. And do you just freeform journal? Do you have... um, do you write in complete sentences? Do you write in lists? Do you have prompts for yourself? Like, what's your process? Yeah, mine is, I mean, I have been, again, writing in a journal since junior high. I started in college in these blank black books. So I've used the same blank black book for most of my life. Um, is which, it the same brand? Uh, it changed. I mean, it's like the it's like the sketchbook from Blick. So sometimes it says Blick on the back. Sometimes it says Swarthmore. Like there's a couple different. I always have a couple extras because you know once I I cannot get to the end of a journal and not have a fresh like the white blank page to start. So I have this. I literally have over a hundred of them from the 35, 40 years of my life that I've been journaling. I write a combination of what's happening. Poetry, lists, things I want to remember, quotes. I tape in pictures, so it's mm-hmm. kind of scrapbooky. I did a whole journal on this month where I was just traveling, and I was really looking at, like, I'm an easy traveler. I just do things instinct instinctually, and I wanted to pay attention to what I do naturally so that I can give it, like, a guideline to other people to help them travel mm-hmm. easily. I was definitely making notes like I was writing a book about how to travel alone to foreign countries in the midst of my journal, but I also, you know, write about people I meet and things I want to remember or a song that that just like means that moment for me. Mm-hmm. It holds everything for me. Like if if I'm talking to someone and they're like meet me here I'm going to write the address in my journal because if I write it on a piece of paper, I could lose it. So that doesn't really fit with like a just a journal, but I know, but it everything goes there so I can keep track of everything. Are you ever worried about anyone else reading them? I can't be. I can't be. I mean, there was a time where my daughter when she was like 13, she asked if she could read the journals. And I I said, yes. And I said, just so you know, like, there's going to be stuff in there. And she was in the other room and she's like, mom, because <laughs> she was reading about when she was, you know, a few months old and like us having sex. And, you know, and I she asked and I gave her permission. And I just gave, I said, you, whatever's in there is... You remember in the house, I had them in the library on the shelf out in the open. Mm-hmm. Like anybody at any party or at any time could have grabbed them and looked. And um, I know my husband never looked at them. I, so I've just always felt safe. And, and I, when I tell people, like I gift people journals all the time because people, random strangers will see me writing on the airplane and I'll get their information and I'll send them a journal. Like I've done this throughout the years because I just believe if we can get more people journaling life is better. And I mean, my one friend from college gave him a journal when he came to Europe in our sophomore year of college, his sophomore year, my senior year. And he ended up writing a book from that journal. But I always encourage people to believe that it's a safe space because if you don't, you're going to edit yourself. And I believe that people don't read other people's journals. Maybe they do. But I 
don't want to think about that or worry about that because that's being inauthentic to what I'm thinking and feeling and, you know, expressing at the moment. But what if you're writing something hard about someone? Like what if you were writing something about a family member and then you let your daughter read it, even though you're open to her seeing the true you, Mm -hmm. let's say, if you're writing something in the journal that's going to reveal something about them, Mm -hmm. that then she would know? I mean, I just think that's part of the risk of using a journal to it's it's the same as having a private conversation with a partner you know you you believe they're not going to go then say everything that you've said to them to the world but you don't have control over that and um like i'm at the point with my book right now where i was told to put more journal entries in and now i'm feeling a little self-conscious about it because <laughs> it's it's pretty raw and revealing and open and 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 I think I think some of it's important. I think some of it needs to be edited out. But I think the words and the feelings behind the the things that I included in the book are meant to help somebody, mm-hmm. even if it is a little painful for me to reveal that part of me or that self-doubt or the you know, lack of self-worth that I felt in those beginning months and that... I've always felt like a really confident person who knew who I was. And, you know, the end of my marriage literally stripped me of that. That combined with perimenopause, combined with empty nest, like, and my business. Like, it it was a perfect storm of things that made me feel less than mm-hmm. and unsure of what my place was moving forward, you know. and and But I've really done the work. I, I, I've been in therapy f- this whole time, I'm still, you know, now we talk once a month, but it's like my check-in and I love it. You know, I've taken, like I'm mentally stable, physically stable, emotionally stable. And, you know, and all of that is just from like really going through it. And and, and you did go through it. And I know there was like a lot of elements to this, but do you, was there one key thing that got you through this that helped with your healing? I mean, I think when it all started to go down, I said to my husband, I need something to look forward to. And I had always wanted to go to Bali. And the next day he booked me a ticket with his frequent flyer miles a couple weeks later. So I went for two weeks by myself to Bali. And I traveled a lot by myself. So that you know, wasn't really like the element of it, but I hadn't really traveled by myself in a long time because I'd been, you know, raising my daughter and traveling with family and or for jobs for 25 years. So to have that experience of like traveling for 40 hours to get somewhere. And by the time I got there, I was like so physically tired, but then I got there and it, and it wasn't all great. Like, they did not like that I was alone. I mean, I would come into my room and they'd have like a heart with flower petals, roses on the bed. And every night they'd come in and turn down two sides of the bed and put two pairs of slippers. And they'd question me eating alone. Like, I have no problem with any of that. But they made me feel super vulnerable about it and kind of unwelcomed. And I, you know, I think I think my husband was hoping that this was going to be like the miracle cure for me, like to go away for this little trip and then come back and I would be on my way. 
it wasn't immediate like that, but I think just getting that taste of traveling again and remembering that little part of me that was such a big part of me in my 20s has now led me to, you know, like I went surfing in Mexico for two weeks by myself. I went to South Africa by myself. I went, I created these opportunities that helped bring me back to life, Mm -hmm. reminding me of that I used to do this and I was good at it and I loved it. And so I think that initial trip, even though it was painful in, in some ways, it was whether it's a trip or something like that, it's like finding something that reminds you who you are or who you were and who you want to be now that things are changing around you, I think is a huge element. And it's cumulative. Like, yes, even if it doesn't feel like it that day, yes. like adding up these little crumbs of it, you pursuing yourself. Yeah. It adds up. It adds up. Well, it's and I like I noticed on my phone you know, it came up this time last year, I was in South Africa. This time two years ago, I was in Bali. And I was like, huh, there's something about February, March traveling. Do you want to hear my funny story about March 22nd? Yes. So March 22nd is my wedding anniversary. I'm, I, it doesn't sting me anymore. Like, I love the date. Like, the first year that we were separated, like, we had had a little snafu on Valentine's Day. And we talked about it in therapy. And so, like, for our anniversary, he sent me flowers, even though we were separated and all of that. So it's like I've, he, I've, I love the day. But I, when I was planning my trip home from Thailand, I was like, oh, I'll just pick March 22nd to travel. You know, it's a good day to be MIA, whatever. Well, the joke was on me. I boarded my plane in Singapore at 1.30 in the morning on March 22nd. I traveled for 30 hours <laughs> I arrived at LAX at 11 a.m. on March 22nd. It was like a double day. (laughs) The longest day ever. The longest day of my entire life. (laughs) And I just have to laugh about it because it, like, here we are. You tried to avoid the day, but you actually got a double day. I got a double day. (laughs) Got a double day. And so. Oh, that's funny. I know. I know. Um, I know we could talk for a million years, but I want to tell you. uh, I want to read to you a little bit what I wrote about you in the book, which. You ha- do not know what nope. I wrote about you in the I book? I do not. <laughs> I have to say, just as a side note, this has been an exercise with my real-life friends of who totally trusted whatever I was going to write. And justifiably, th- I say this with no judgment, the people who were like, now what are you What are you going to write again? <laughs> they just wanted to make sure mm-hmm. you know, that I wasn't going to spill secrets or paint the relationship a certain way. I don't know. And I have just noticed that in my own life, as I told people ahead of time, I'm writing about you or after I'd written it, you know, I had to seek permission to use people's real names or whatever. So as the slow reveal came over maybe a course of a year of me telling different friends that I'd written about them, everyone's reaction was different. (laughs) And yours was total trust. Like Mm -hmm. you didn't blink. I don't feel like. I mean, we were on yeah. text, but you were just like, okay. Like, you weren't like, what did you say? Can yeah. I see it first? You offered to to show me what you had written. And I was like, nope, I'll wait till the book comes out. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure you were fine with it. Yeah. I did, on in yours in particular, I did not offer everyone to see it first. I did, I have to ask everyone to use their name. But yeah. um, for yours, there was a little bit of sensitive information yeah. that I just wanted to make sure you were cool with. Yeah. But the fact that you trusted me with how I would handle it, it does actually mean a lot to me. Okay, I'm going to read this whole, um, This like it's like a page and a half. 
To her credit, Cindy took on Megan and me like the family, friends, and mooches we were. As an L.A. native, she modeled California casual in every way. Cindy taught us where to shop for good food and cool clothes and quirky housewares. She taught us how to throw together a last-minute chic dinner party and how to stay cool when meeting a celebrity. Cindy remains one of the largest influences on my entire life. A decade after meeting her, I did have a baby, and I did know the perfect girlfriend gift to buy, and I did throw candlelit dinner parties in my backyard, all the things she taught me about. Cindy was a glimpse into what I wanted my future to be, and she showed me exactly how to be once I arrived there. I owe her enormously, and I still have those jeans. <laughs> Do you like it? I love it. Oh, my God. Oh, I have chills. Oh, good. Oh, my gosh. I mean, Laura, thank you for including me in your book. Well, thank you for being such a great influence on my life for all these years, 20 years now. I know, but but like, I feel seen right this moment. Like, throughout my life, hearing it through your words, you know? I just know because we still have a lot of mutual friends and acquaintances over the years. And honestly, I know that our relationship is not unique because of who you are. Like, I know so many women who would say the same about you. Mm. That you really taught them how to be. Wow. Wow. Are you surprised that I'm still here 20 years later? That this is the life that I made? Just knowing the 22-year-old girl. I mean, you came here with that in mind. I think there were plenty of moments along the way where you could have packed it up and chosen a different path. But I think the fact that you worked through any of the twists and turns that came your way and you met Jeff and married Jeff and started your family here... It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And I, it makes me happy, actually. You know? Yeah. Because, again, we don't see each other that often, but I have so much love in my heart for you, and I'm so proud of you for writing these books and for doing all the things that you wanted to do when you came here at 22, and you've created this amazing family, and you just showed me the wall of artwork on the wall that your kids do, and, you know, like... All of that is is seeing you now model who you are to anyone who comes into your house. Because you did. I know, but like it like it's it's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. That's why this relationship in the book, the mentor, the life council member that I'm calling the mentor, is so important because I think All of us are consciously or unconsciously emulating someone. Mm -hmm. We all are. You know, we're trying to be our mothers or we're trying to not be our mothers. Mm -hmm. You know, we're trying to be this or that, even if it's unconscious, even if you don't have a big plan or that's not the way you think. We are the sum of who has influenced us. Everybody is. absolutely. And so if you can stay conscious of who you are choosing as a mentor of like, yes, that is who I want to move towards instead of passively, you know, going in a direction you don't want to, mm-hmm. then that really matters. You know, one of the things I end up saying in the book, I didn't read this part to you because it's a bigger part of the mentor chapter, is that I have theoretically often lamented not having a traditional mentor 
because I think that word is often used in a professional sense. Mm -hmm. So professionally, I haven't had the mentor that I would have wanted, like that you see in the movies, like where they like give you sage advice from like the desk or whatever. I've never had that relationship and have been sad about it because I've been like, I've been a freelancer for 20 years Mm -hmm. and I've just been making it up as I go along. And sometimes it's very lonely that way. There's been years where I haven't made very much money mm-hmm. because I'm, you know, it's just freelance art is hard. It is <laughs> so hard. Um, and I, so I've always been like, oh, I wish I had like a mentor professionally. But I knew this was a, a seat that I wanted on on the Live Council. And so in that chapter, I end up writing about you and then I end up writing about another friend who's a, almost your exact age. She might be a year younger than you, but, you mm-hmm. know, 10 years older than me, basically. And as personal mentors instead of professional ones. And so by the time I get to the end of the chapter, I'm like, oh, I've I've always thought that I didn't have this person. Mm. And I do. Mm. So I sort of wanted other people to maybe be on that same journey. If you don't have a professional mentor, if you're not a career person or whatever, that there are still people who are teaching you how to be. Yeah. Well, and one thing that just popped into my mind about you guys coming at 22 some of the people that I met in Hollywood, not that I was raised with, but people that I met as I married my husband and was more involved in the Hollywood life, a lot of those people only wanted to know you or be around you if you could do something for them. And oh, that yeah. was never the case with you guys. And I I felt slighted in many instances where a group would come and like just the inauthenticity of someone brushing me off and not getting to know me or not acknowledging that I'm even there because I'm not anyone who can give them a job or you can't read their script. No. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, I've always been a little adjacent to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, But so hearing the way that you write about meeting me and seeing me and experiencing me as a human being is means the world to me. You know? Yeah. It's almost more important than the professional one in some ways. I think so. Yeah. I think so. But I kind of had to come to that conclusion. Which is even more beautiful. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Love it. I love it. I love it. Thanks for listening to this Secret Tapes episode. I hope it gave you more insight into what this relationship looks like on my personal life council and how it might fit on yours. I hope that you loved listening to that conversation with my mentor, Cindy. I think that you can see how much she has affected my life. If you want to hear the full series of the Secret Tapes interviews, conversations with the people that I write about in the Life Council, you'll have to go to lauratremaine.com slash secret tapes and sign up using your email address to get access to all 10 episodes. That's lauratremaine.com slash secret tapes. Thanks for listening and also for reading the Life Council. 10 friends every woman needs. You've just listened to an episode of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. For show notes and links, go to 10thingstotellyou.com. Make sure you're following us on Facebook and Instagram at 10thingstotellyou. And you can also join our free connection group on Facebook to discuss episodes and topics. For bonus content, ad-free episodes, and monthly Zoom gatherings with me, join my Secret Stuff Patreon community by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash secret stuff. Thanks for listening. 